Barbecue Central Show, let's go. The number one barbecue show on the low. Your host, Greg Rampy, the grilling master, spreading the info, getting to you faster, asking tough questions and having a blast. The Barbecue Central Show is here at last. The best moments of the Barbecue Central Show in 10 minutes or less. Come on, let's go. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the best moments of the Barbecue Central show in 10 minutes or less. I'm your host, John Solberg. Today, we're looking back to December 17, 2013. Historian, author, first time guest Maureen Ogle stopped by. She is the author of a book called In Meat We Trust. Definitely an interesting conversation. You're not going to want to miss it. We're going to get to Maureen in just a minute, but first, let's hear from recurring guest Stephen Reichlin where he and Greg uh, talk about prime rib and a little bit of dry aging of beef. Maybe a, a little bit of a definition of prime rib to start. So, uh, well, prime rib is uh, basically a section of the steer's rib cage. Uh, the largest cut of a prime rib includes seven ribs. Uh, typically what you'll find at the supermarket is three to four ribs. That will give you roughly uh, three ribs to give you about a six or seven pound roast and four ribs to give you about an eight to 10 pound roast. And um, what I love about prime rib is that it is incredibly opulent. It seems incredibly challenging and complicated, but you know what? It's really easy. It's really easy. I will often make a prime rib when I have unexpected company and I don't have time to do anything else, I don't have time to smoke a brisket or, uh, or, or smoke a shoulder cloth. And the preferred method that I use is uh, spit roasting. To me, there is no better way to cook a prime rib than on the rotisserie. Ideally, on a charcoal rotisserie, that requires, the, if you've got a kettle grill, that requires the purchase of a rotisserie collar that goes on a kettle grill. But the beauty of spit roasting a prime rib is, first of all, that slow, gentle rotation bastes the meat with its own fat. Second of all, if you're working on charcoal, you can talk, toss a handful of soaked wood chips on the coals, and so you lightly smoke the outside of the prime rib. Uh, crusty on the outside, as rare as, you know, not rare as you want on the inside, and the cooking time is relatively short. You're looking at about hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half. All right, uh, Stephen Reichlin talking with us about prime rib. Um, we'll get a little bit more into the cooking process here in just a few minutes, Stephen. But when we're looking at it, if we go to, you know, preferably uh, a local butcher, if you have one, I know, you know, in some places those are kind of dying off and you're forced to either just go to the box grocery store or the big box stores like a Sam's Club or a BJ's, what have you. There always is that uh, decision argument in our culture, of course, the choice versus prime. I mean, you could even go up into the you know Wagyu cuts or the uh, certified Angus, you know, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, when we look at these different levels, uh, how does one decide which prime rib level to look at and buy? Well, on one level, that's governed by your budget. On another level, it's, uh, I guess, governed by a notion of connoisseurship. Uh, you may be surprised to hear me say this, but I usually cook a choice prime rib over a prime prime rib. 
what I do like is when we can get dry-aged prime rib uh, that adds a whole complex layer of flavor. Uh, to the extent possible, my wife and I personally try and cook organic or grass-fed prime rib. But it's a very forgiving cut. And this is a, a point that I want to drive home to people. Um, you know, if you there's a huge difference between uh, a choice T-bone or porterhouse and a prime T-bone or porterhouse. Uh, there is, with those steaks, there's a lot that can go wrong. You can screw up a lot. It's pretty hard. If you have a good instant read meat thermometer, it's pretty hard to screw up a prime rib. Stephen, when you're talking about dry aging, and I'd like to kind of hit those uh, little sub-features a little bit more in depth, too, here in a minute. But dry aging, you know, you hear about it. I don't know if uh, the majority of the people that are more peripheral into this industry are fans of the show. You know, they hear about it. Uh, they might see that option at a butcher's uh, place where they say dry aging available. You know, what's the process, and what does it add to the beef that you're buying taste-wise, texture, feel in the mouth, that kind of stuff? Well, basically, it, it, it affects, first of all, the dry age. You know, this is not something you do in your refrigerator. You really need a proper meat locker. You hang the beef unwrapped, uh, and over the space of, let's say, a month or six weeks of dry aging, two basic things happen. Number one is there's a process of evaporation where some of the water in the prime rib evaporates which concentrates the flavor of the meat that's left. The second thing that happens is there are enzymes in the meat that ripen and develop in flavor, much the way a cheese develops in flavor as you ripen it. And so aged beef will have a richer flavor. It'll have a, so sometimes that flavor will border on funky, but it's a more intense, matured, if you like a ripe cheese, if you like an old cheese, an aged Parmesan, if you like your wines with a decade's worth of age on them, chances are you will like uh, a dry-aged prime beef. And let's make a point that there's a difference between dry-aging, which is this evaporation process, and wet-aging, where a hunk of meat is cryovacked and plastic and aged. And that gives you very different flavor, much less complex, much less nuanced. Now, coming, let's come back to that evaporation for a minute. So when you dry age a prime rib and you lose uh, water to the evaporation, you have less meat to sell for the same uh, – you, you pay one price, but in fact you lose volume and weight on the meat in the dry aging process. So that accounts for its more expensive price. The other thing is, as you're dry aging, the outside tissue becomes dry and it needs to be trimmed away. So that's a further degree of loss uh, and a further reason why the price is more expensive. By the way, that full prime rib is comprised of the 6th to the 12th rib of the steer. The dry aging, is it something that, you know, if you have access to it, it's worth giving it a go, and if it's something you like, obviously you can continue if you want to pay the premium. Uh, but if not, you've at least tried to expand that palate. Well, I'll tell you what, super easy way to do it. If you live in a city that has a Whole Foods, in the Whole Foods meat department, 
they almost always they have a meat locker where you can watch meat dry aging. So we bought some New York strips a few weeks ago, which is my favorite cut of uh, of steak. And uh, we tried one dry-aged steak, which uh, I think was maybe 25 bucks, And then we tried a non-dry-aged New York strip, which was maybe 15 bucks. And we tried them side by side. And the dry-aged beef, yes, had a much more complex flavor. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the favorite of everybody at the, at the uh, table. Some people like the kind of duress, direct, real sanguine meatiness of the non-dry aged beef. But that's a that's an easy way to try it and see if you like it. You know, I would recommend doing that before I would buy a dry aged prime rib, which can set you back a few hundred bucks. You know, the other thing that you'd mentioned was grass-fed versus grain-fed. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you go into a butcher's shop or wherever you're buying your meat and it says, hey, this cut is grass-fed, this cut is grain-fed. Is that something you're going to have to ask the uh, the meat purveyor? Well, you are, and where you tend to find grass-fed beef, again, is at a Whole Foods. I mean, I'm trying to think nationally, or at an individual market, or at a uh, farmer's market sometimes, uh, they'll sell it. And, you know, grass-fed is one of those real moral, grave moral dilemmas for me. Uh, I I, want to like it, I want to love it, I want to eat it, I want to believe in it, because grass is the natural diet of a steer. And in a way, feeding a steer a grain diet, as we do for the most part in the United States, causes alimentary problems that have to be remedied sometimes with antibiotics. It's not the natural diet. However, grass-fed beef lacks a certain richness, a certain buttery mouthfeel that you find in grain-fed beef. So, you know, I want to like it, but blindfolded probably if you put a grain-fed piece of beef in front of me and a grass-fed piece of beef, uh, blindfolded, I would probably pick the uh, the grain-fed beef. The best moments of the barbecue central show in ten minutes or less. Come on, let's go. You know, as you get into the research, and obviously, you know, when the country started out, it's uh, nothing like it was uh, as you fast forward to 2013, now almost 2014. Back then. How was the meat culture and and how, I know it's kind of a a big fast forward to do, but how in your studies have you seen it grow to, you know, where it was maybe even 10 years ago? And obviously, maybe within a a 10 to 12 year time span between where we are now and 10 years ago, there has been a somewhat of a a different movement of artisanal beefs and wanting to know where the beef has come. Is it humane and all that stuff? But prior to that, you know, where do we go from kind of like beginning to that huge meatpacking craziness? Well, in- interestingly, now, again, I need to stress that I didn't know anything at all about meat. In fact, I've spent most of my adult life being a vegetarian. I ha- I've not even been a meat eater that long, so I, I really knew absolutely nothing, and, and I prefer that because I don't want to have an agenda. I just kind of want to go into something with a blank slate. So I I thought, okay, where am I going to start this book? And I really out of sort of idle curiosity more than anything else, I thought, well, I'm just going to find out what people in the colonial period, you know, before the United States was the United States, what were colonial settlers doing? And that, I found, turned out to be, believe it or not, 400 years ago, the key to our meat culture now. I discovered that when the settlers who uh, came to North America from England and settled along the eastern seaboard, when they got here, they were 
really uh, experienced culture shock because there was so much land. They came from a from the old world where both land and food were chronically in short supply. They get here and there's infinite amount of land, and they realize they can eat meat whenever they want, which they had not been able to do. But from the colonial period, long before the American Revolution, I discovered, I didn't discover, I learned that Americans um, had this very well-developed sense of entitlement, that yes, they were (laughs) going to eat meat, and that was what was going to make them different from everybody else in the world. And people who came over to visit, even before the, the revolution, were flabbergasted at how much meat there was. By the 1880s, 1890s, you know, fast forward now 100 and 200 years, um, Americans had built an enormous infrastructure to supply meat at a very low cost. Americans were already then the biggest meat eaters in the world. And, and it just, you know, we, we have systematically over a 400-year period built this immense infrastructure for supplying meat and there's such an abundance of it that we can have something like a barbecue culture, which, you know, is a, is a big subculture in the United States, a culinary subculture. Uh, we, we, are really, we really have a well-developed sense of entitlement about meat. Is it, uh, well, that was uh, so great. I have a billion different questions in my head right now. So, <laughs> you know, because we have developed the, you know, the sense of entitlement, as you said, and that infrastructure of beef, and then having a, a plethora of beef to eat every day if you wanted to, five times a day if you wanted to. If you wanted, yeah. You know, there there was uh, more and more as we learn. You know, you, you don't want to eat beef all the time. And uh, the guest I just had on previously said, "Hey, cut it out once a week. Have meatless Monday." Uh, his daughter's a uh, a dietitian. Uh, was it a year or so ago? You were hearing about things like pink slime, and you know, I have friends within this industry that are you know butchers or they're involved in the meat business, and they've told me under no uncertain terms that say, "Hey, you know, if you want to continue to eat." the beef and the meat that you're eating, you're going to have these things like pink slime because, you know, you just can't keep making, you know, meat like crazy. You have to have something that, uh, I don't want to say, supplements the weight of the product or allows you to continue to eat beef, but it might not be at the uh, quality levels that you might be thinking you're getting it at. I, I, that, that's right. I mean, th- th- here, here's the deal. Beef, let's just talk beef, since that's probably well. You probably you got you know barbecue also involves pork. Well, poultry too. Um, beef, but let's just focus on beef. Yeah. Any meat packer will tell you that the carcass itself, the fresh beef the, of the cuts that Americans prefer, it it does not pay for itself. The only way to pay, to make that affordable, all that really wonderful, those really great cuts of beef, you have to focus on byproducts. And you have to strip all the inefficiencies out. And, and the reason for a so-called pink slime, the technical term is actually lean, finely textured beef, that was and is a method of stripping every bit of scrap off of the carcass. You know, even the most skilled butcher can't get everything off. And the guy who developed the pink slime technology, I, I shouldn't even use the phrase, lean, finely textured beef, his idea was he was going to take carcasses and he, he was going to use, he used centrifugal force, of all things, to extract every single bit of scrap, every tiny bit of meat protein off of a carcass, 
and the centrifugal force actually um, sort of blows out all the gristle and the tendons and, and much of the fat. So what you're left with, what that so-called pink slime is, is 100% beef, but it's very, very, very the finest, you know, it's just everything taken off of the carcass. So when you're done, all you've got left is the bone. And that does, in fact, help make meat affordable. And then what this guy did was compress these bits into, a blo- into blocks, and then he sold them to other beef processors who would mix it to make lo- low-fat, lean, very lean ground beef because the stuff he was making was, is pure, pure, very, very lean beef. There's no fat in it. And Americans are pretty picky about hamburger. They want a oh. very particular blend of, you know, fat and lean. And that's what the product went for. And, and yet somehow this is a for I mean, only in a society like ours where we have an incredible abundance of food in general and meat in particular, only in our society would we complain about, in effect, using technology to be very frugal and save money for everybody. So everybody at every income level can afford it. I, I mean, the irony is, I think, rich. I, I'm kind of boggled my mind at the time. Uh, Maureen Ogle joining me here on the show. The website, by the way, MaureenOgle.com. When I, when I started working on the book, I realized this topic was so big that I had to just weave some stuff out, and I figured out right away that the whole business of livestock breeding, forget it. It, it is a mammoth mammoth topic. I, I would be, you know, I'd have to live to the age of 200 if I was going to include that in the book as well and do justice. Oh, livestock breeding, Americans have really, um, they have borrowed from livestock um, strains all over the world, and they've been doing this for 400 years. And we, we have a very, very rich livestock breeding history in this country. And these days, the breeding is being done at the DNA level. But of course, for you know, the, most of the last 400 years, that's, it, it was certainly not DNA level. But yeah, we, especially beef breeding, that, that's, a, that's a biggie in this country. Yeah, we're, we're um, really masters of that game. You know, I had mentioned it a couple minutes ago, uh, and this will be the last question before I let you go, and I appreciate the time tonight. Um, you know, I've found that maybe over the last, uh, you know, four or five years that I've been doing the show, uh, there was a, a definitive small, uh, no pun, grassroots movement uh, a handful of years ago where artisanal beef people were hitting the market with their own uh, grass-fed beef. And what I kind of akened it to, because I am kind of a wine lover at heart, uh, is you you were able to take this piece of beef that you have and you were able to kind of track it all the way back to uh, where it was raised, how it was slaughtered, what it was fed on, what it was finished on. Is that something that you see continuing to gain popularity or has that kind of peaked and fallen off already? Oh, not, not even a little bit. No. Um, in fact, um, for, until the late 1970s, beef was the, the, the most eaten meat by Americans, and then due to various new ideas about health and diet and so on and so forth, starting in the late 70s, American beef consumption actually fell off a cliff, and I'm, I mean really it just fell off a cliff between about 1976 and 1986, and it, it has never regained its top position. Now, today, um, Americans eat more poultry. What is growing, though, in the beef market, if you just sort of isolate it and look at it, what is growing in that market, the only growth in that market, is that very high end. These artisanal, grass-fed beef products 
things like Angus beef, which is uh, rarefied to a very high degree in the United States. But, for example, among grass, um, a gra- grass feeders who are, you know, making that kind of beef, um, it, it is a very highly specialized, you know, you can, get, you can get beef that's been fed on this kind of grass, and you can get beef that's fed on that kind of grass. And I've talked to beef producers about it, and they feel that this is the only growth area that there's going to be in the beef market for, you know, time to come. They don't, they don't see any growth, really, in the beef commodity market, just plain old, you know, conventional beef. It's, it, beef only is growing at the very, very high end now. Again, that was Maureen Ogle, the historian author of the book In Meat We Trust, which is available on Amazon, and a little bit of Stephen Reichland talking about prime rib and some dry aging of beef. You want to hear the rest of those episodes, head on over to thebbqcentralshow.com, click on the archive page, type in Reichland, type in Ogle, O-G-L-E, use that search box to get you where you want to go quickly. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via podcast so you never miss an episode of the Barbecue Central Show or this show again. Until next time on the best moments of the Barbecue Central Show in 10 minutes or less, I'm your host, John Solberg. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you soon. The best moments of the Barbecue Central Show in 10 minutes or less. Come on, let's go.